Zach got it. Yeah. Whoa. All right. It's just one of those mornings. It's been one of those weeks. Um, and just to correct something, thank you for the help. Uh, not this Saturday, but next Saturday is the work day back here in the back. The ninth, not this coming. This Saturday was going to be the stop the bleed class over at the high school, and we've had to move that to January, so there will not be that class this sun, this Saturday or Monday either. Um, working with some folks at UT Medical Center or the trauma department that we're going to help with the class. That class isn't happening until we've rescheduled till January. Um, so back up on that. The ninth is the work day that Saturday. Okay. Very good. I've been, uh, I'm way behind. I'm like nursing a headache this morning. I'm like, it's just one of those mornings, been one of those weeks. Y'all know how transparent I am. Like I don't like just get up and smile and all that stuff. But it's been one of those weeks, like started with Two, week, two days of federal jury duty and getting called down to Knoxville and having to sit through that all day for two days. And then they end up sending you home, which is great because I did not want to be there for this deal through January. They said it was going to last. Um, so I'd hate to be 9 to 5 Monday through Friday in jury duty in Knoxville. So I was like, you know, you're sitting there trying to think of ways to get out of it. I'm like, what can I say that they'll be like, you're out of here, you know. That guy's crazy, you know. So... Uh, those thoughts went through my mind, of course, but I never got called up to be questioned or anything. They let a bunch of us go, and they, uh, I guess they start Monday on that court case. But um, Then Cole started basketball, had two games this week, tournament on Saturday. Like, it's just – so there you are. Um, that's the week. And so a lot of you guys, I know how it is. Your weeks go that way too, and you get to the end of the week. And so it's – this is something when we come here on Sunday mornings, I just kind of, it encourages me. I'm energized by it. I just love being here because it's a moment to just stop and go, well, let's just remember what all this is really all about. Let's just remember why we're on this planet. And yeah, things get crazy, but it, it helps us. I think God's pretty smart to have, have put things together the way he has in the church and, and just say, we, we need this. Um, in your small groups during the week, if you're not part of that, um, that as well is just a time that just helps you and your family stay focused, and it's just a wonderful thing. So anyway, we continue in the book of Mark this morning, following the life of Jesus as he came to the earth, ministered here on the earth nearly 2,000 years ago um, before going to the cross for his glory, for our good, and Hope that you have shared your faith or at least reached out to someone in the past week or thought in your mind, I want to be intentional this week about building relationships, inviting somebody to church, uh, sharing Christ with them, take them out for a meal, have them over the house, like you're, you're, you're thinking in those terms and hopefully this series has helped you get that reminder to, to be that way, to be great commission uh, kind of people and so hope you have shared your faith or at least reached out this past week to someone and ministered to their soul, been a friend to somebody in Jesus' name, or at least made a friend or a contact who may need Jesus. Perhaps they don't even realize it yet. Um, did you know, and this is something we'll see here in just a little bit, but did you know that the faith of friends can do a lot in the life of someone who doesn't have any? 
He's not got there yet. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing, but we'll talk about that later. We often think it's based on our faith, and um, ultimately, at the final decision, it is. But there's a lot we can do to help people get there, and we'll see that in something happens with Jesus and someone in this story today. But we've seen in this book Jesus do many amazing things, miraculous things, healings, cast out demons, feed multitudes, um, done all kinds of stuff. Uh, watched him as he declared, displayed, and uh, just was this ultimate example of his great compassion for people, his compassion for Jews and Gentiles alike. And you hear us talk about that here, you know, um, about Jews and Gentiles. And the fact that it's for both means a lot to us Gentiles. I is one, right? Okay, just in case you don't know, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. That's just the way it works, Okay. You're in one of those two categories as far as the Bible's concerned, okay? And so, uh, as a Gentile, as that second part of that, of first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, I'm glad God made this for all people. That's what it comes down to. And at this point in chapter 8 of the book of Mark, we just finished um, last week the feeding of that great multitude of of the 4,000 in the Decapolis area, this Gentile area. He'd already done that with the 5,000 in a Jewish area, um, and and we saw the contrast of those two things and why there were two of those. Go back and listen to that if you missed that. And they had left the Decapolis. That had just happened. Here they, we finished last week. They left that area and went to the district of Dalmanutha or what was known as Magdala. We talked about that and how that's where Mary of Magdalene is from, Magdala, and where the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign that he really was the Messiah. And Jesus basically gets very upset with them that they keep going there with this. And they've been following him around and giving him a hard time. And now they're asking for a sign that he really was the Messiah. And he sighs heavily and says, I'm not going to give a sign to this generation. There'll be no sign for you guys. Um, and, he walk, and he walks away. And it's kind of like, after all I've done, all I've said, you guys just aren't going to get it. So I don't have time for this kind of thing. Um, so here we are in Mark eight, fourteen, and it says this. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Uh, which I think is interesting because they picked up seven, right, after they left here. So it's like, dude, y'all ate a lot of bread before you left, right? Um, obviously, they're not, um, don't have a gluten problem, right? But so they, they, this bread, they don't, they have one. He's, and it says he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now this, this story is in a couple of the other gospels. And so uh, where this parallels, it'll, it'll, it'll explain the leaven of the Pharisees a little more than the others in saying the leaven of the the leaven of legalism, the leaven of hypocrisy. And that relates to what the Pharisees were doing and being legalistic and hypocritical in their ways. You know, whitewashed tombs on the outside, but their hearts aren't in the right place. Just outward expression, hypocrites. And so it says they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. So I, I just, I'll get to that in a minute. This just, I love stuff like this. Um, 
And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart, having eyes you do not see, having ears you do not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets of broken pieces did you pick up? Right? They said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not understand? And I just, I love stuff like this. It was a long boat ride, probably about eight hours. Some people estimate, given where they were going to and from. Uh, and they, they were concerned about one thing. They're like, we only have one loaf of bread. And, and Jesus is talking about leaven. So, so he must be uh, complaining because we only have that one loaf of bread. Like, like we did something wrong. We messed up and just brought one loaf, right? Like, and this makes me feel so much better. Because for me, you know, a lot of people, you know, you look at these guys and you go, how did they not get that? But I so often don't get it, okay? It's there so, so often that things don't make sense to me and, um, and I so easily miss it. And, and I just think I'm just so glad that even the, the disciples themselves had their issues. Um, it makes me feel better about myself. Um, because it's like we talked about a couple weeks ago. He, he he gets more glory using the weaker, the, the us in our in our weakness, in our brokenness, in using something that you go, there's no way that could possibly come from there. There's no way only God could do that with this person. So I love the fact that he uses those kind of people. And that's all of us. It's just some people don't realize how broken and how weak we are as we discussed a couple weeks ago. Um, but it just makes me feel better that these guys sometimes just don't get it. Um, they make miss what Jesus is saying altogether. And it's just all they were stuck on is, man, we have loaf, one loaf of bread and, and mayonnaise, a bunch of us. Okay? That's Appalachian American talk, in case you missed that. Okay? And so here, we, and so here they are, worried about the bread, lamenting, they only have this one loaf of bread, and Jesus is trying to use this to explain to them what just happened with the feeding of the 5,000, with this interaction with the Pharisees when they got off the boat, um, and to teach them a deeper truth about evil, about sin. And so he uses the term leaven, and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Just had an encounter with them that we ended with last week, and the leaven of Herod and they thought, they thought or they reasoned to themselves. They're, they, they, they're like, okay, we heard what Jesus said, so let's have a committee meeting and let's talk about, hey, we only got one loaf of bread, okay? A quick note, Jesus was right there in front of them. I mean, here's Jesus trying to explain it, and they start talking among themselves. You know what I'm saying? Don't we do that? Like, that's a simple illustration of often I get in situations where I go, I just don't know what to do. So I'll go visit my dad. I'll go talk to um, some good friends of mine. I'll get together with people in the church that I know. I'll, I'll talk, I, I start calling people. Hey, text somebody. Would you pray about this? And I've not even stopped myself to talk to Jesus who's right there in front of me, right? Okay? So just a simple illustration. You're like, yeah, I've heard that so many times in church. I know what you're saying, Marty. But we do it. Okay? Right? We do it. We seek other people for answers that Jesus has for us if we would just ask and he's right there in front of us. And these guys are literally, physically standing right there with him. 
I mean, all they had to do was look at him and go, I'm not sure I understand. Could you explain that a little more, right? But instead they go, okay, and they huddle up and start talking to each other. Now, he's talking about leaven, and leaven in Scripture is used as a symbol of sin or of evil, okay? And leaven or yeast is put in bread to make it rise, and it basically just permeates or spreads through the whole loaf, okay? And typically in the Bible, like I said, it's, it's, it's speaking literally of the spread of evil, okay? So beware of the leaven, the evil that spreads quickly of Pharisees and of Herod. And in the other Gospels where this is, it's, like I said, it's legalism and hypocrisy. So we understand what they're saying about the Pharisees, but what does this mean about the leaven of Herod? Like, what is that, right? But there was this group of people back then called the Herodians, okay, that, that followed this thinking that we need to change things, the spiritual climate of, our, of where we live. We need, everything can change and be better if we, would just, if we could just get the politics and the government right. That felt good to hear y'all. Like, y'all, y'all clicked right there. That's good, okay? It, I mean, that's, that's, that was their thinking. So Jesus is literally saying, be careful that you think things are going to change because you have the right king, which they were looking for in Jesus, the Messiah, to be this political, military leader. Be careful that you're looking for it there because, of course, we know Jesus would say, on this, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's, that, it, that the church has been put forward to steward the gospel. It's the means by which lives will be changed. And when lives are changed, that will change the government. When lives are changed, that'll change school systems, health care. Like we think the means is if we could just get the health care system fixed. If we could, And I know you guys are going, here goes Marty again on this tirade about as non-political as I am. But I'm just telling you the hope of the world is not a great health care system, not a great education system, not a great government. The hope of the world is Jesus and his message of the gospel, which we have been given as the church, to share with people and spread to the world. I mean, that's where it's at. Okay? We get sidetracked by so many things. Here by a loaf of bread. Okay? I've been distracted by a loaf of bread before. Okay? Went to Dollywood the other day and the hot cinnamon bread at the mill. Very distracting, right? Especially for a diabetic. It was like, right? Turned into a zombie, headed right for the line. And so easily distracted. See, there I go. I don't even know where I am now. Um, and the other, but, but it's this thing of these Herodians thought they could change the nation by political means and even change the spiritual climate. And it's, and, and it's all, it's for a lot of people, it's all about their agenda, their party, their candidate. And I'm careful, and I explain this to our church a lot, of being, being careful of getting so caught up in all that. It's okay to talk about that stuff. It's okay to talk politics. I'm not saying it's not, but there should be a difference in how, in, in your conversation versus other people. It's, you know, a lot of people, it's all about their agenda, the party, the candidate. Christians who talk more about politics than Jesus and spiritual things, it's just, where's your heart at, okay? And the church is where the answers are found, not in the government. Those things are important. 
But beware of that, Jesus says. Jesus says to them, do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember what I've done? Okay? And I believe, and it's, and it's in a different, very similar, but in a, in a different way that Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, can have hardened hearts too. Now we can debate whether these guys got it at this point or not. I think Peter especially, I think, is about to get it, but then in a way he's not, okay? But one of the biggest problems, for I think, for spiritual people, moral people, is that they can become very hardened, even in their goodness, okay? And, and it's tied to something, okay? Verse 18, he says, and do you not remember? When you fail to remember, your heart is susceptible to hardening, spiritually speaking. I don't mean hardening of the arteries, okay? That's not what I'm talking about, okay? I'm talking about your spiritual condition, right? When, when we fail to remember God's mercies, we, we, when we don't re, aren't reminded, even on a daily basis, we have died ourselves daily, right? When we don't aren't reminded of the gospel daily, we drift from it a little bit. And we become uninterested in the things of God. We become uninterested. The, the Great Commission doesn't get us fired up anymore like it used to. I mean, you see, and, and as a pastor, and over the years, you, you watch it over and over and over. The people getting so excited. Salvation. They understand it. They serve. They do all these great things for so long. And then all of a sudden, it just starts fading and fading and fading. And before long, a lot of people just fade away. And you just wonder where'd they go. And it causes you in your mind to go, well, did they really get it in the first place? And, and, and some of that can be just hardening. They just let go. Of the, it's just like, yeah, I've heard the gospel before. Yeah, this is just a broken record. I've heard it. And I'm like, well, did you, do you really grasp how big this is and what this means for us of what Jesus has done for us? It should never get old to us, right? And when we fail to remember God's mercies, his grace, the salvation he's brought to us, when we fail to remember that, you put it, that out of your mind, your, your heart could harden. Don't stay tender anymore. You, don't, you become very entitled. You get angry and bitter because you forget. You just don't live for Jesus like you used to. So he says to them, how is it that you don't understand? The, the Lord was speaking about the persistent unbelief that existed in the Pharisees, existed in the Herodians, and, and it spread like leaven through bread and perhaps was already a part of this group of disciples even though they had seen so much, heard so much, been a part of so much of what Jesus had, had said and done. Remember, they're, they're thinking Jesus is coming as this earthly king. That's what's in their mind, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. They think he's going to take over the government, take things back from the Romans, do all this. That, that They just aren't seeing the big picture, the eternal picture. They're stuck on their situation today. So in, in verse 22, he goes on to say, And they came to Bethsaida. And if, you, if you'll remember back, if you've been tracking with us, there's, there's, he's already kind of wrote off a couple of places. As those places are cursed and, and they're just, I can't help them anymore. Okay, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. And it says, And they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. 
Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. Interesting, because this is one of those places. We'll talk about this in a minute. Leads him out of there, okay, before doing anything for him. He brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes, he laid his hands on him, and he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. So maybe it's still blurry. It's like, I see these things, but I'm not sure. So then again, he he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, don't go enter the village. Don't go back down there. It's interesting, okay? Stuff we miss when we read this, and, and there's a lot of context here. But Mark is the only one of the Gospels that record this interesting incident. It's the only time in Scripture that Jesus touched somebody twice, it tells us. Usually it was just the one time, or they touched him one time, right? This, this bothers some people, this story, because he, he had to do that twice. Does that, some people think, well, what happened with Jesus? Was he a little short on power that day? Like, was he not prayed up from the night before? Or did he not get it right the first time? He didn't say the right, you know, Aramaic words in order? Or what, like, did he mess up? Was something wrong? Why do you have to do it twice, right? And first of all, I, want you to, I, I do want you to notice that they brought him somebody who was blind. They, they, they being whoever was in that town, right? It could have been his friends, probably some friends, some relatives of his were like, we've heard Jesus is nearby. Let's get dude and take this blind Uncle Frank or whatever his name, whoever he is, let's take him to Jesus because we've heard he can do stuff like this, right? So he grabs, they grab him, they lead him by the hand out to Jesus and the crowd was probably had to be a, a lot of people there. And it reminds me of the story of, remember when Jesus was in the house and uh, they had to look, the, the friends brought the guy who was lame and they lowered him down through the ceiling to get to Jesus. And he literally in that one says, because of their faith, like he refers to the faith of his friends. Okay, this is interesting, okay? Now, I love friends who love their friends so much that their priority is we got to get this this guy to Jesus. We got to get her to Jesus, right? That's the best thing you can do for your friends, for your family, is get them to Jesus, tell them about Jesus. And here it is, listen, it, it wasn't that man's faith that was blind on the front end that, that got him to Jesus, okay? I, I don't think that guy had any, he's blind. I don't think he had any expectations, really. He's blind, they're just leading him along, and, and, and it was their faith. This is important, it's huge to me. There, there's a doctrine that's been going around, still goes around, prevalent today, that says you will not be healed unless you personally have great faith. And if you're not healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith, right? And if you're living a Satan-defeated life is why you weren't healed. Like you can, as though you have to be doing everything right and your faith has to be perfectly being lived out or you can't be healed or that's the key to being healed. And to me, that puts it in your hands, not in the hands of Jesus, your healing. Because if I can just walk correctly, have the right faith, if, if I can do these things, then I'll just be magically healed. That's me doing that, not Jesus, okay? 
It's not name it and claim it or blab it and grab it like some people say, right? That's more East Tennessee, right? It'll just be yours if you can do it. But the, the, as though the only reason you're not walking in perfect health is because you don't have enough faith. Like all of us could be walking in perfect health if we just trust and have enough faith. That is not the way it works. The Bible never explains it that way. There's no record of this man having any faith when he was led to Jesus. But evidently his friends had faith that when Jesus hit the shore in that boat, they brought him, we got him to Jesus, and they brought the friend to Jesus, just like the man in chapter 2 I referred to that his friends did that lowered him down through the roof. So he took the blind man, Jesus grabs him by the hand. Can you imagine how, just how wonderful? So really he touched him more than twice as he got out there because he's grabbed him by the hand and they've walked out of town him leading him around obstacles you know and not running into stuff and leads him out of town why why did he do that why did he lead him out of town he didn't just stay in town and do it and and i believe our lord has already at this point pronounced judgment on bethsaida and capernaum Chorazin. there's like these these places that's mentioned where he says woe to you Bethsaida, woe unto you, Capernaum, right? If the signs and miracles done for you had been been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, they would have repented long ago. I mean, basically, that's that's that was part of the upset thing with those Pharisees that wanted a sign. He's going, I've done all that, and you still don't get it. And and. These places were places he had done more than any other place. Like they had seen him do more than a lot of other places had. So he's going, I've done so much in in your town. I've done so much in these places. It doesn't matter how much more I do. You're you're just not going to get it. So at this point, there's nothing I can do for you. Like you remember the Romans 1 thing of that progression of God gives you a little truth. And if you don't step into it, You step more into darkness, and you start to lose that until you get to the place you're hardened, and it may be that you just can't ever get back there. I mean, that's these towns had had seen so much, and they they were just stuck. They just didn't get it. And he can, I believe, he consigned them to judgment. Their hearts were hardened. His doing a miracle with that kind of unbelief going on in that town would just have stirred things up. Probably have sidetracked the plan of getting to the cross at the time that was appointed by God as the plan was laid from the foundations of the earth, it would have messed up that plan if he'd have done that there. So this, so it's almost like they bring him and he's like, but his compassion in his heart goes, look at this, these friends, and they, how much they love this guy, and they want him to be healed. Okay, let's, we got to go out of town, though, buddy. Come on. And uh, it takes him out of town, and, and he's like, this is between me and this guy, leads him out of town, he puts a spit on his eyes, and you go, why is he doing that? There is a, a thing back then, it was not uncom- uncommon actually to believe that certain human afflictions, infections kind of things could be healed by human spit, okay? That that could actually bring healing on, on certain wounds and stuff. So, so th- But this is in two stages. He sticks his hands in the guy's eyes and rubs spit around in these disease crusted eyes and then he says what do you see right he's like I see images looks like men walking around 
like trees. And he says, okay, well, come here, let me do this again. And he lays his hands on him again, does the thing again. Now what do you see? I see perfectly clear. Last two stages. Why not just instant healing? Nothing wrong with Jesus and his power to heal. This is God we're talking about. He's already raised dead people. He's already cast out demons out of people. It's not hard for him to do this, okay? And this is what I believe is happening. It's not based on the guy's faith of whether of what's happening here, but, but at this point when he gets to people, I hope you understand this. The ultimate goal in life is not to be physically healed. It's to, to be spiritually whole, which leads later to a resurrected body. Which, So being healed in this life isn't the ultimate thing. One out of one people still die, okay, statistically. All of us. It's going to happen. So physical healing is only going to just prolongs being on this earth, which as Christians, to live as Christ, to die is gain, right? So to, to, to go on actually is better than to stay here, but if we're here, we'll just live for Christ, right? So the issue is not, for the, even for this guy at this point, really physical healing. He wants to raise a faith in the man that leads to a spiritual healing, okay? That's really the issue for Jesus. Always has been, is today, right? There may be physical healing in hopes that that brings God glory and people will see it, and they do come to faith in Christ, that it brings a faith to them, right? So I believe in touching him the first time, and it, it enabled the man for the first time to see light, color, shapes, those kind of things, maybe not clearly defined, evidently. But just that probably had a, just a little something rise up in the man and go, okay, maybe this guy's who he says he is. Maybe this is for real. Maybe, like, and so this faith starts to well up inside of him, right? And it caused him to have a certain amount of faith in Jesus that would cause him to step a little further and put his faith in Christ. So the next time... So the second time he does it is not in response to the friend's faith and this guy being here. It's in response to his faith. Right? Because, I mean, you, he touched him again. Now what do you see? I see perfectly clear. He did it to draw out his faith as he did many times. If you read the stories of where he does this, where the woman who touched the hem of his garment how, that had the flow of blood for 12 years, several occasions, the guy, the his daughter and he comes to him and my daughter you know there's all kind what does he do when that when those things happen he he would always draw the faith out of those people that he was ministering to and he would do it by a lot of conversation and asking questions who touched me okay and then talk okay so it's not just the the physical healing that just happened let me draw out faith in you that leads to some spiritual healing because I don't want to just leave it there, okay? I mean, the, 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 I believe it was a soldier that came to him and was like, my child's at home sick. And what does he say? He was amazed by the man's faith, right? So, and and he, this healing occurs and he, he talks to him and it's like, go home, she's healed. Like, I don't even ha- like he didn't even have to touch her. Just, just say the word. And that's what he said to Jesus. He's like, you just say the word and I know it'll be done. Right? Asking questions, getting a response to instill or inspire faith in them 
It says, and he sent him to his home saying, don't even enter the village. So evidently, he didn't live in that town, maybe outside of town, maybe in another area, but Jesus was there, so his friends brought him to that town. And he didn't live in Bethsaida, he lived somewhere else. So Jesus says, go home, don't go back to town. There's no need in going and talking to anybody in the town. And then Jesus and the disciples leave. Okay, so here's what you need to know at this point, because this is a major, I mentioned this before, This at verse 26, like you could literally in the book of Mark draw a line and say this is, this is a big divide right here in what's going on in Jesus' earthly ministry. It's a big change, okay? And what we saw before is there was a lot of stuff like feeding the 5,000 to the Jews, and he does all this stuff for them. Then all this we've been talking about ladies, lately has been all this stuff that he's doing for the Gentiles. And now there's going to be this big shift, okay? It's a dividing line, a turning point. Um, everything we've read so far um, in the gospel account and everything that will follow, s- scholars literally call this the continental divide in the gospels, okay? Everything that before this point has been Jesus ministering to the masses, to the crowds. He's been doing miracles for the people. He's been, like I said, Jewish people, Gentile nations, and he's been teaching the crowds mostly. Now Jesus leaves Galilee, and everything will be focused from here on out, not on teaching the masses or Jews, Gentiles, but to the 12. He's going to shift and focus on these 12 guys, discipling them, training them, getting them ready for his suffering, his death, his resurrection, preparing them for what's to come because these are the guys that's going to launch the early church. So he's got, he says, I, and it's a great leadership principle, and he's, he's going to focus in on these 12 guys that's going to be the ones that's going to go do this after he ascends and and all of his focus won't be on healing it won't be on the crowds but the disciples themselves and so that's why it's called a, a continental divide he's preparing them for the great commission so mark 8 27 after you shift from verse 26 it just it says this jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of caesarea philippi and on the way he questioned his disciples saying to them Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. There's, I don't have time to get into it. There's reasons they would say people say these things, okay? Um, Like Elijah, what happened to him? Anybody remember? He's gone, right? So they think, well, maybe he's come back. Like, because he didn't die and, like, get buried somewhere. He just got sucked up into heaven. We just don't know what happened to him. So maybe he's come back. Like, there's all these reasons why they guess these things, right? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some say one of the prophets, maybe thinking he's Jeremiah, one of those people. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? I know what you're saying, these, everybody else, but I want to know who you think I am. And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. It's interesting right here, right? And he warned them to tell no one about him. Because Peter gets it right, and he's like, okay, y'all, you're getting it. Just don't tell nobody yet, okay? Because it's not the appointed time. It's not not time for all that yet. But I need you guys to know, okay? So so let's paint the picture. Um, Where this... Caesarea Philippi is 25 miles north of Galilee. Beautiful spot. It's where the Jordan River begins. Um, 
very green in the summer, very cool. It's at the base of the highest mountain in the Middle East, Mount, Mount Hermon. It, the, the, there's snow on that mountain year-round. So that's constantly melting, and that's what kind of starts the Jordan River. Okay? It begins here. Then there's some other rivers that flow into it later, but this is where is actually considered the start. And so that's how tall that mountain is there. Okay? And so the, this town was built by Herod Philip. Okay? If you remember the whole Herod mess and the, the brothers and marriages that weren't supposed to be and all this stuff that happened, right? So Herod Philip built a town for Caesar Augustus to honor him. He was the Caesar, and by this time, Caesar Augustus, he reigned as emperor for like 57 years. By this time, they're considering him deity, right? They, they, that's, that's how they viewed this, the Caesar in Rome. So he was deified by the, the Romans and called Lord, okay? In fact, this is why one of the reasons the early church got in so much trouble, right, is because they were told to stand at a statue once a year and put a pinch of incense in front of the statue and say, Caesar is Lord. That's why the whole verse that says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved, because that has a very strong connotation to it when you say, I refuse to say that to Caesar because Jesus is my Lord. Because you'd be killed for that. That's saying that's how much faith you have in him. That it's not about this life. It's about eternity with Jesus, okay? And so Christians would refu refuse to do this. They wouldn't grab the incense. They, they would, in defiance, say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And they'd kill them for that. So already in that area, in that town, Caesar's is being deified and worshipped, okay? So also there... Were, were 14 temples to other gods, not, not only to Caesar, but to Baal. Remember the Old Testament deity Baal? So there's Baal worship still going on. Temples to other, another god called Pan, right? Some of you know who that is or what that is. It's a false god in Greek mythology, half man, half goat, okay? Plays a flute called a Pan flute, okay? That's where that comes from, okay? And according to the myth, Pan, that God, was born in a cave nearby, the same cave where the Jordan River comes out of a rock, okay? And Jesus deliberately takes them to that place, to this place that he takes those disciples that had false worship of other gods, other deities, to make a comparison between who those gods are and who he is. Okay, like there's intentional teaching going on here, right? It's, it was this, this place was also considered the lifeblood of the nation, the source of the Jordan River, okay? It was actually referred to sometimes as the river of life, right, okay? Because it's, it's what gives our nation life is that river brings all this water, right? It was important to the Jews. That was the source of what they called living water. It was important to the Greeks because it was the birthplace of their god Pan, right? It was important to the Romans. They deified Caesar. So with all these different belief systems, Jesus takes them there to contrast it to them and says, who do, who do people say that I am? And the different opinions vary. You, know, you see how intentional when you understand where they are and all those things like what's going on in the minds of these disciples and what Jesus is trying to do with them, I think is just incredible. Second question to the test, though, beyond who do you say, who do people say that I am, is who do you say that I am? 
And Peter said, you are the Christ. In the book of Matthew, it gives the whole answer um, that Peter gives. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that word Christ or Christos just means Messiah. Messiah and Christ are basically the same, okay? Christ was not like his last name, okay? It's not like Mr. Jesus H. Christ. That's not, that's not his name, okay? Despite popular belief in East Tennessee, okay? It's, Jesus was his first name. Christ or Messiah was his title, okay? That's why they would say Jesus the Christ sort of thing, okay? And the word Christ or Messiah is this word that literally means to smear. It's this idea of to smear with oil, so it's this idea of being anointed, okay? That's what, that's what it's talking about. In the Old Testament, there was groups of people that would be smeared with oil, okay? There would be um, prophets, would be anointed with oil, priests, and then eventually kings would have this done to them, okay? Priests first, later prophets, and then kings of Israel, would have this happen as they demanded a king, right? They always wanted a king. And so that happened. And so the, the, because of this third group, the anointing of the kings, the original concept among the Jews of, of a Messiah sprang forth. They saw the coming Messiah as this conquering king. That's, they related it that way because that's what had been going on with their earthly kings because of the Bab- Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C., if you remember that, the, the monarchy, the Jewish monarchy lets them down. They get a king, but it all lets them down. They, they get there, but... So there was birth this hunger to see someone become king who's greater than David. This, after Saul, the, 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 the first real king after David, they wanted the deliverer to come for the Jews to set up... Um, the kingdom age. They want all that to happen, and they think it's going to happen there on earth in an earthly sense. So there was this growing intensity from the, by the time the New Testament comes around for a, this monarch, for a deliverer, a messiah. So they were looking for a political or military messiah. They were off track. And Jesus wants to show them that you won't understand the messiah. You won't understand who he is unless you see him as a crucified Messiah. You just aren't going to get it. You are the Messiah. Who do you say I am? You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. They got that right, but watch this, verse 30 again. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Now later on, he'll reverse that and say what to them? Right now he's saying don't tell. Later he changes that after he after the resurrection before the ascension, he looks at him and says, go tell the whole world, right? But right now, he doesn't want to have some kind of rebellion, revolt, have Rome come in and destroy the whole thing. So he says, keep that part quiet. There's already these crowds following me, okay? This is where I come across a different thought on something. I've, I, I've said to Nikki, the, I was sitting there in the bed after I'd been here at the church studying, and I sat and I said, you know, I think I'm... I'm beginning to look at something a little differently. And of course, that scares a pastor's wife, right? She's like, oh no. Like, what are we going to start doing now? Like, my husband going to turn into a heretic or something? No, don't. So I, I feel, I understand when I say that. But it's just a different thought on a non-essential, okay? But there, there's a common thought that Satan and the demons 
sort of celebrated when Jesus was crucified. They're like, yes, we've won. We, we, you know, we, we put him down. Um, that as though, you know, in all that thinking is as though they were the ones that orchestrated his death and did all that, right? They wanted him to die. But, but, but when, you, when you look at Scripture in the context of Scripture, and there's, there, I'm still wading through this, but this makes sense to me, okay? This, it's, I'm, I'm not so sure it's that way. I mean, is it possible that they knew if Jesus fulfilled all he said he'd do in prophecy? Because like, they knew Old Testament, right? I mean, they, the demons knew as soon as they saw Jesus, these demons like Legion and that man knew exactly who Jesus was and would say, have you come to destroy us, right? And they would say, please don't destroy us. Like they knew who he was and the power he had. And so if he's been speaking all this this time and he's with them now and even saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised on the third day and I'm going to set up my kingdom, right? Would, you know, and there's some people, I read a bunch of stuff even up through late last night that about how some people think, yes, Satan is a superior being as far as intelligence to us as humans, but if the disciples didn't even get it, it it's possible that Satan still didn't connect the dots and get it and thought if, he, if Jesus were to die, it would, it would end things, okay? I don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm buying that, okay? Because I'm going, they knew, like, because they got it, right? Even the demons believe and are afraid or tremble, Right? So, so they know. Like, what are they afraid of then? They know from, from the whole Old Testament, they know what he, they know the head of Satan is going to be crushed. They know that Jesus is going to die and that there's a plan from the foundation of the earth. Like, they know that, okay? They know Jesus is saying, I'm going to, be, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised on the third day, and my kingdom will reign. That they know Jesus has a plan. And it was God himself who put Jesus on the cross and had the plan from the foundations of the world. So with that in mind, let's read the next verses. Peter get, gets it right who Jesus is, but then gets rebuked. Why? Why would that happen? Okay, look at Mark eight thirty one. He says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. I love how it says that. It's, I mean, that's there for a reason, to say there's no question of what he was saying. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Peter, who just said, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God, you, you, you're the Christ, right? And Jesus is like, good job. In, in the other version, though, it says, Peter, you didn't figure that out on your own. That didn't come to you by flesh and blood. It's through the Spirit of God that you understand that, okay? So then right after that, Peter's going, hey, Jesus, come here. You know the stuff you just said? That's all wrong, right? I mean, how would you like to be that guy, right? Peter begins to rebuke Jesus for saying he's going to die, be resurrected. And, and so... But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, what? Get behind me, Satan. Why is he saying that, right? For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You get in the context of all this as we've gone along, okay? Peter was thinking earthly political 
powerful king that benefited them in this life, not eternally, and in thinking temporarily about their own agendas and on earth, they become these people who are siding with Satan to prevent his death. They're saying, no, you can't die. So you see where this thinking of understanding of it, I think Satan knew. I don't know that he want necessarily, like, he probably wanted Jesus to die, but knew that was part of the plan. So is it possible that he's saying right here, if you're wanting to stop the plan of me dying, I mean, that's what this is saying. If you're wanting to stop the plan of me dying on the cross for the sins of the world, be resurrected and go sit at the right hand of the Father and work through this planet through the Holy Spirit to let everybody know the gospel. If you're wanting to stop that, then you're with Satan. You're not with me. Right? Because Satan knows that plan and, he, and he'd be the one that would want to stop it. John Piper in a sermon gave this dialogue toward Peter as though being addressed by Jesus and he said this, Peter, if you resist my plan to die, you resist God. You side with Satan against God. Satan doesn't want me dead because he wants you in hell. You understand that? Satan wants me to bow down and worship him and jump off temples for fame and turn stones into bread for self, self-preservation. That's what I, that whole temptation in the desert, that plays into this whole thinking of understanding. That was Satan trying to stop all this from happening. I can divert the plan. Man, I, I, I offer him all this stuff, and let's, let's go a different direction because I know if this keeps going and he fulfills his plan, I'm done, right? He goes on to say, the last thing he wants is for a ransom to be paid for his captives. But that's what God wants, Peter, because he loves you. My coming to die as your ransom is the love of God. I mean, it's like, it's like, oh, Peter, don't you get this? I mean, Peter got the answer right. You're the Christ. Probably felt good about that, right? I mean, if it was me, I'd have been like, hey, guys, you, you hear my answer, that was pretty good, wasn't it? Right? I mean, he pro- it, not that standing there with the Messiah, if you get that, you probably aren't, but... Part, but at this point, he probably feels pretty low. I mean, he goes from, I got it right. Like the teacher said, I did a good job too. Okay, you got detention, okay? In, in just one step. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Completely misunderstood the, who the Messiah was. If you're going to understand the Messiah, you have to see him as a sin bearer, okay? And they didn't get that part yet. So this is the part of the education, the discipleship, the training of these 12, getting them ready for the Great Commission, and they won't really get it until the resurrection and ascension. They, they, that's where they start getting it, and the Holy Spirit comes, right? And it's, you have to see him as sin-bearer. Like, and I'm just remembering this as this concept. I just, I just remember, it's been some time ago, but this is the illustration I've used before. Some of you have heard this, but I was in Easttown Mall one day, uh, Knoxville Center, sorry. And I was in the food court and I'm eating and there's this this guy's just walking along the food stuff and I'm at a table and I know where this guy runs up behind him and starts yelling at him and because he looked at him a certain way. So I saw you look at me, what are you looking at me for? And 
and all of a sudden just starts beating him down, just starts hitting him right, right there in the, in the mall. And, and, I, and I, I just thought, you know, you freeze for a minute and you're like, you look around like, is, there, is the mall cop around? Like, what's going on? But then it's like somebody's got to do something, right? That somebody's got to step up. And, and I thought, okay, if I, in, in your mind, you, you would think this, right? If I go over there to help, it's possible that now me and that guy are into it, and I could get beat up. I don't know, right? I don't know the dude's skills. He looks pretty barbaric in the way he's going at this, but who knows, okay? I know you're looking at me going, probably not a fighter, okay? Right? Don't sell me too short, okay? I've learned a lot in the past 18 years, okay? Um, running around with certain guys, okay? But it's, it's one of these things that I jumped up and I ran over there, and by the time I get there, another guy gets there. And, and I just thought, it, regardless either way this goes, the whole concept was, and I, I ran over and I was like, hey, you know, there's no need for that here, just over this. It's not worth it. And I, and I said, you just need to go on about your business, you know, kind of thing. And the guy, um, he walks off, and he's, you know, cussing, yelling the whole time. And we helped this guy up and get him on his way. Um, didn't want to call for anybody or do anything, so he, he was okay and went on his way. But, but I thought to myself about the guy that attacked him and about this guy. You just think Jesus is the kind of person that would be a sin bearer. He would take the hits from somebody if it meant they would go free. You know, and just, just to think of running over there and if, if he had done something to me, maybe at least I'd be taking it off this guy that's on the ground. And that's what Jesus does for us. I mean, he takes on the sin of the world and Jesus is looking for people to step into scenarios and be him and take on the sins of the world. There's times people are going to do stuff to you. There's times you're going to get hurt. It's going to be no fault of your own. Might be. But regardless, there's times you're going to have to take it and absorb it and then just walk away. And that's being like Jesus, because that's what he did for us. He went to the cross, took it, and then offers us grace. And there's a lot of times we're going to be called to do that. And I think that's why he gets into these verses of Mark. In these last four verses, we'll read that, then we'll be done. It says... And he summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what he's saying. You're, you're going to end up, if you follow me, it's to be a Christian, a little Christ in this world. And you're going to have to absorb some sin, too, on your own cross if you follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be also be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so the question would be this morning, do we, do we really get who Jesus is? 
So therefore, what we're called to. Does the, the gospel ring so clear in our hearts and minds that we have set our hearts and minds on eternal things, not the temporary? And if you understand Jesus dying on the cross in your place to bring you forgiveness, and not just that, but eternal life that comes through the resurrection and the power, to, it just changes you forever. It, it really changes you forever. So who do you say Jesus is? Let's just pray. Father God, I just just thank you that we have your word for how clearly you make it to us as we can sit here and read these things. And thank you for your Holy Spirit that reveals more to us than our human minds could ever understand. I just pray if there's someone here, Father, that doesn't, know you in that capacity. They don't know you as Lord and Savior. They don't know you as their eternal King. That right now they would understand their condition. That they would understand they're in need. Because there is sin that has to be taken care of. That they would just turn to you turn from themselves and their sin and just turn to you that you would forgive them and that you would come to just reign over their lives they would follow you from this day forward that they would become people who take up their cross daily and follow you that they would become people who are just like you and absorbing the sin of the world to, to show grace and mercy and Father, for the rest of us who would say, we know you, we, we understand it. Would you just, Father, help us not to, not to fade on that. Would, we, would you just remind us somehow of the gospel every morning? Would we be disciplined enough to read the scriptures ourselves, to pray, to, to be at church, to be in small groups, to be connected to the family of God, to do all these things that you have set up, Father, for the per- perseverance of the saints? to help us stay strong to the end, that we would not have hardened hearts, that we would not lose our zeal and passion for the gospel for you, Father. So raise us up to something more. Help us to see you for who you truly are. Help us to be reminded of that every day so that our passion just grows. And so we thank you that you work that way, that you're there for us and there's always more of you. Nothing gets old, nothing gets boring. If it does, it's just us. Help us not to be that way. And so we thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.